Good morning, Flood Church. Uh, let's read the scripture this morning from 1 Samuel chapter 20. It's, it's uh, 42 verses, and then uh, from the New Testament, we'll be reading John chapter 15. Would you stand with me this morning as we read the word of the Lord? 1 Samuel chapter 20. Then David fled from Nioth at Ramah and went to Jonathan and asked, What have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he's trying to kill me? Never, replied Jonathan, you are not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything, great or small, without letting me know. Why would he hide this from me? It isn't so. But David took an oath and said, Your father knows very well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said to himself, Jonathan must not know this or he will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there is only a step between me and death. Jonathan said to David, whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. So David said, look, tomorrow is the new moon feast, and I am supposed to dine with the king. But let me go and hide in the field until the evening of the day after tomorrow. If your father misses me at all, tell him. David earnestly asked my permission to hurry to Bethlehem, his hometown, because an annual sacrifice is being made there for his whole clan. If he says, oh, very well, then your servant is safe. But if he loses his temper... You can be sure that he is determined to harm me. As for you, show kindness to your servant, for you have brought him into a covenant with you before the Lord. If I am guilty, then kill me yourself. Why hand me over to your father? Never, Jonathan said. If I had the least inkling that my father was determined to harm you, wouldn't I tell you? David asked, who will tell me if your father answers you harshly? Come, Jonathan said, let's go out into the field. And so they went there together. Then Jonathan said to David, I swear by the Lord, the God of Israel, that I will surely sound out my father by this time the day after tomorrow. If he is favorably disposed toward you, will I not send you word and let you know? But if my father intends to harm you, may the Lord deal with Jonathan, be it ever so severely. If I do not let you know and send you away in peace. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father, but show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live so that I may not be killed, and do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. Then Jonathan said to David, Tomorrow is the new moon feast. You will be missed because your seat will be empty. The day after tomorrow, toward evening, go to the place where you hid when this trouble began and wait by the stone. I will shoot three arrows to the side of it, as though I were shooting at a target. Then I will send a boy and say, Go find the arrows. If I say to him, Look, the arrows are on this side because of you, bring them here. And then come, because as surely as the Lord lives, you are safe and there is no danger. But if I say to the boy, look, the arrows are beyond you, then you must go, because the Lord has sent you away. And about the matter you and I discussed, remember, the Lord is witness between you and me forever. So David hid in the field, and when the new moon feast came, the king sat down to eat. He sat in his customary place by the wall opposite Jonathan, and Abner sat next to Saul, but David's place was empty. Saul said nothing that day, for he thought something must have happened to David to make him ceremonial unclean. Surely he is unclean. But the next day, the second day of the month, David's place was empty again. 
Then Saul said to his son Jonathan, Why hasn't the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered, David earnestly asked me for permission to go to Bethlehem. He said, Let me go, because our family is observing a sacrifice in the town, and my brother has ordered me to be there. If I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away to see my brothers. That is why he has not come to the king's table. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father. But Saul hurled his spear at him to kill him, and then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. Jonathan got up from the table in fierce anger. On that second day of the feast, he did not eat, because he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David. In the morning, Jonathan went out to the field for his meeting with David. He had a small boy with him, and he said to the boy, Run and find the arrows I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. When the boy came to the place where Jonathan's arrow had fallen, Jonathan called out after him, Isn't the arrow beyond you? Then he shouted, Hurry! Go quickly! Don't stop! The boy picked up the arrow and returned to his master. The boy knew nothing about this. Only Jonathan and David knew. Then Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said, Go, carry them back to town. After the boy had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. Then they kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the most. Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left and Jonathan went back to the town. Our New Testament reading this morning is from John chapter 15, starting at verse 12. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father I have made known to you. You did, not chose me, but I, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. You may be seated. So uh, some of you don't know me, but my name is Renata Walton, and um, I'm married. We have four children. And uh, we're from Canada, and we work here in Malawi with orphans and vulnerable children um, in some children's homes as well as community-based orphan care in Kauma. So I'm happy uh, to share the word with you this morning. We've been going through this series called God Can, which is based on the book of 1 Samuel. And we've heard so many fascinating stories and interesting accounts of radical and unexplainable things happening to the people of God. And uh, it's kind of a good time to hear Tikala's story about the dream because we've been going along and seeing God do things that might be somewhat unexpected, but it's still by his grace and by his power that he speaks to his people. Specifically, though, of course, in this book, we've been learning about Samuel and Saul and David. And uh, the people of God finally got what they thought they wanted, which was a king. 
But of course, it became such a terrible, difficult process for them that eventually led to the downfall of one and the rising of another. But this passage specifically talks about uh, the friendship between David and Jonathan. And uh, theirs is a friendship that has no equal throughout Scripture. Uh, Earlier in chapter 18, David and Jonathan make a covenant with one another, and the Scripture tells us that David loved Jonathan as himself. In fact, he went so far even to remove his robe, give it to David, take off his sword, his bow, and his belt in that same chapter, and give all of those things to David, which tells us that he really expected that uh, David would take the place of Saul on the throne. Uh, I, some people are tired this morning. I'm tired also. And uh, when uh, I was in my third year of Bible college, and I went to Nairobi to study for a year, and I can remember sitting there, and it was a Friday afternoon at 1 o'clock. It's the worst time for a class, and we were studying apocalyptic literature, which is so fascinating for the student who's learning it the first time, but maybe for the professor, it's like, Friday at 1, I just want to be taking chai and going for a rest. So I remember sitting there. We decided to have the class outside that day. And I was asking the professor a question, and he literally fell asleep in front of me. (laughs) And uh, we were a small class. There was only about four of us. And I'm looking over at my friends, and I'm like, Dr. Obohatsa? Dr. Obohatsa? And he's just sitting there... And I said, Dr. Obohatsa, and he, he kind of jumped and he said, oh, I guess you just have such a soothing voice. <laughs> so uh, I hope my voice is not that soothing this morning, <laughs> but uh, I'm already seeing people yawn and so I'm a bit nervous. <laughs> you know, at this point in 1 Samuel, Saul has already tried to kill his own child once. He's already thrown a spear twice at David to try and kill him. So certainly we can understand that Jonathan was seeing that his father's uh, descent into madness and into failure was, was already happening. So one of the things that uh, I've been really fascinated about since coming to Malawi is, and this sounds a bit morbid, but you got to stay with me, is how many people actually lose their lives to wildlife. And I don't mean people who live near the parks and people who understand that these are wild, predictable, unpredictable, beastly, deadly animals. I mean people who come and they go on a safari and they decide, you know what, I've been alive for a while and I'm just thinking, why don't we just walk through the jungle? Why don't we just see what happens? <laughs> or they try to get closer for maybe a better picture. I think just earlier this year there was someone killed in a game park because he tried to get a better picture of an elephant and was trampled. And I know I was even, I I, uh, joke a lot about this with our growth group, so I wish Wes was here today, he's not here. But uh, we had even read an article online about uh, now in one of the parks, I think it's Liwande, they have something similar to this stage where you can sleep on a bed outside just like this. Now, people who don't live here or know what that really means are like, that's amazing, I would love to be so close to nature. (laughs) But everyone else understands that that's really dangerous. (laughs) So at my workplace, uh, we have a a multi-purpose building. 
And it was actually built by a German family that wanted to memorialize their family member who had come to Malawi but had, had died here. And he was, he was one of these people that decided just to get out of the car, get a closer look, and ended up being trampled to death by an elephant. Now, I tell you I'm fascinated by this because I can understand the, the sense of curiosity of wanting to see the animals closer, but at the same time, I'm learning more and more appreciating just how deadly that situation can actually be. So it's so tragic, obviously, um, but you know, what did he think would happen? I, I'd like to hear maybe the guide or the driver's side of things. If, if he, maybe he just wanted to see what would happen to this guy. Uh, but I heard another joke about two men. Now, this is just a joke. So, um, who, who did the same thing? Walking through the jungle, decided to see the elephants, uh, listen to the birds, smell the flowers, enjoy the flora and fauna all around them, when all of a sudden there is a leopard not 15 meters in front of them. Now quickly they started running as fast as possible to get away from this wild beast, terrified for their very lives, when suddenly, if you want to run fast in Malawi, what do you do? Do you remove shoes or you keep them on? <laughs> you remove shoes, right? Suddenly this man stops, he removes the shoes, and he quickly puts them in his backpack, and his friend said, what are you doing? Removing your shoes is not going to help. You can't outrun that leopard. And his friend said, I don't need to outrun only the leopard. I need to outrun you. <laughs> now, I watched a race one time with our pastor, and that's exactly what he did. He removed his shoes, and what happened? He won the race. He won the race, and it was against all the dads at our children's school, and so that was pretty good. <laughs> but sometimes we have experiences like that with our friends, don't we? where they would rather maybe put themselves in a position to be safe or gain ahead while they leave us far behind. With this story of David and Jonathan, we see a friend who is true through all of the trials, a friend who is honest and trustworthy in every circumstance. So what does a true friend look like? We see something powerful here with David and Jonathan. Their friendship is tried and tested in so many ways, and it proves itself true. The first thing that we see is that a true friend brings comfort. In verse 1, David expresses his fear of Saul's wrath. And right away in verse 2, Jonathan responds by telling him, you will not die. David is filled with fear. His life is in danger. He cannot know what he has done, but he does know that Saul is seeking to kill him. And Jonathan responds by reassuring him that everything will be fine. Though he cannot know the outcome, Jonathan wants to bring that assurance to his friend during this time of instability. So the story continues, and we see these two friends. Another aspect of their friendship is that a true friend is willing to do anything for you. Verse 4 shares with us that Jonathan says to David, literally, whatever you ask, I will do it. Just look at verse 4 if you have your Bible. Jonathan says those exact words, whatever you want me to do, I will do for you. Just imagine for a moment the fear and the panic that Jonathan would have, or David would have been facing. His life was in danger. He had left his home. He had left the comfort of his wife's arms. He is literally dodging around trying to keep his head straight. And his words in this moment, Jonathan's words in this moment would have meant everything. And that's 
That's what a true friend is. In your panic, in your fear, they're willing to do anything you need. Because a true friend serves you. Now, they say in this story that Jonathan is really the protagonist. He's sort of the main character. But David also plays such a vital role because David refers to himself as Jonathan's servant. At this point, they're friends, but they're even family. Because don't forget, David is married now to Jonathan's sister. But David still considers himself as one who serves Jonathan. He's humble. He wants to serve Jonathan, even in his own suffering. We're even reminded that a true friend is vulnerable. It's not just about wanting a true friend, but it's also about being a true friend. So David asks Jonathan to hold him accountable. If there's any sin in me whatsoever, I want you to address it. In fact, he says, why wait until your dad can kill me? Why don't you just do the job yourself if I've done anything wrong? So being a true friend, it means you have to be vulnerable. You have to ask for accountability. It's about being the person who you say you're going to be and wanting someone to hold you to that. Now, for the last few months, for the first time in my life, I have an accountability partner. And uh, this was sort of a fad when I was a teenager in Christian churches in my, our part of Canada. That's all I can really speak to. But really, the youth pastors were like, you need an accountability partner. They're going to help you. And they never really gave us a framework of what that was going to look like. But I have this. We've just started out as friends, walking a journey together. Now we, we speak every day. We're in a similar stage of life with our kids at similar ages. And we're encouraging each other. We pray for each other. We seek the Lord in specific areas. When one falls, the other one lifts her up. And it's life-giving. It's hope-giving. And I've been a Christian for almost around 20 years, and it's taken me that time to fully experience this, this aspect of friendship, about being vo- so vulnerable with one another. But I love the heart of David in, the, in this passage because he wants his actions to be called to account by someone he knows he's safe with. He wants to be vulnerable to Jonathan, and we, we continue see, and he can be vulnerable to Jonathan because he knows that a true friend will keep you safe. He knows he is safe with Jonathan. <clears throat> have you ever had a friend that you don't feel safe with? Maybe you have that friend right now who does dangerous things, who puts you in situations where you don't feel secure. I'm just going to tell you that's not a friend. That might even be an enemy. Look at your Bible. and Let's read verse 9 together. Never, Jonathan said, if I had the least inkling that my father was determined to harm you, wouldn't I tell you? So as his friend, he wants to keep David safe, and he assures him, if I knew there was going to be anything, I would tell you. So he values David's safety, and he also gives him that assurance that a true friend values your life over their own. And look at verse 13. Jonathan says he's willing to risk his own life to tell David of the harm coming to him from Saul. And he does something that is, is quite, uh, it's almost dangerous because he calls out the Lord's punishment on himself if he doesn't warn David. So he cares for this friend over and above everything, and he says he's even willing to die for David. This covenant between them is serious. It goes beyond life and extends actually until their death and beyond that. <clears throat> Not only does Jonathan put his own life on the line for David, 
but he shows us that a true friend calls out blessing over you in that same verse. He actually asks that the Lord would be with David in the same way that he was with Saul. He doesn't ask for that blessing for himself as the child of a king, but he actually speaks it over David with a measure of faith. And that's what true friendship is. He wants a blessing that would be so beneficial for himself, he's actually wanting to release that to his friend. So that, that's what true friendship is. When what you actually are willing to give to someone else, when you are willing to give what should be yours to someone else. Now this picture doesn't just go between these two men, as I've just mentioned. It actually extends through the generations. Look at verses 15 and 16. They're speaking again here in covenant terms. <clears throat> declaring that their friendship will not last just between the two of them, but even through their descendants. And we see this coming to play later in 2 Samuel, when David has dealings with Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. Let's everyone say that together. Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. You can own it. Feel confident now when you read it. <laughs> He remembers this covenant when it comes to dealing with Mephibosheth. And David is anxious and concerned to extend the covenant he made with Jonathan forward to his own child. He shows his continuous commitment to the covenant. Now, in verses 18 to 23, just pull that up in your Bible or your phone or your tablet or from your memory. Um, a true friend protects you even when they are not sure of the danger. Jonathan and David make a plan to keep David safe from Saul's outreach if, in fact, it actually exists. Because up until now, Jonathan has just heard David saying these things. And Jonathan is saying, well, how do you really know? He doesn't totally have proof that's real, but he wants to make sure that's, that David is safe and to keep him from harm. Now, sometimes... It can be really easy to find a friend that would want to use you, to use me, to use us, rather than protect us. I have a friend, and uh, she was recently telling me of her story that's quite powerful. Um, but she was with someone who she considered her best friend. And her best friend told her, hey, I have this boy that I'd like you to meet. And my friend said, well, I'm not really interested. She was studying at school. Uh, but her friend kept pushing her, saying, why don't just meet him? What, what could, what's the worst that could happen if you just meet him? Um, and so they did. the three of them decided to meet. But when my friend and her best friend found this boy, the friend's boyfriend was also there. So then it ended up being two guys and two girls. So the best friend decided to slip away with her boyfriend, leaving my friend alone with a total stranger. Oh, a series of events unfolded, and a terrible thing happened. He locked her in a room. He raped her, and a few weeks later, she found out she was pregnant. Now, I have been in a public venue before with her where she's shared this story, so that's I feel comfortable to share it with you because you don't know her. And now, I mean, she's the loving mother to this wonderful child now who's in primary school, but what about that friend? She didn't protect her. Instead, she forced her into a situation really to get something that she wanted herself where a terrible, terrible fate was waiting for her. A true friend protects you. And along with that, a true friend trusts you with their life. Look at verse 24. 
Okay, David hid in the field, and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. This is, uh, it's kind of strange when you think about it. Can you imagine a friend telling you, just go wait in that field, and when I'm ready, I'm going to shoot some arrows and shout out an encrypted message. And, and David, he, he just does it because of the love between them. He had a lot of trust, but of course, up until this point, Jonathan has proven himself over and over and over again that he is trustworthy. But what if David had not been hiding in that field? What if he had decided, I'm out, and just decided to head back to Bethlehem because he wasn't sure of what Jonathan was going to do? But no, David trusted Jonathan with his life, and he knew that his friend held his best interest at heart. It's not only about wanting a certain kind of friend, it's about being a certain kind of friend. You know, it's hard to trust people when they fail again and again and again. And uh, one of my old friends always used to say, I just plan for the worst in my head, so that way if someone totally disappoints me, I was expecting it, and if something better occurs, then I'm relieved. So she's living her whole life with that mindset, which can really tear, can tear you apart because you have no trust for any other people. And obviously she'd had a lot of disappointments, she'd had a lot of things happen to her. But we see in David, we have to be willing to put ourselves out there and to trust people. Looking at verses 27 and 29, not only did David trust that Jonathan would find him in the field, but a true friend faces your enemies. Jonathan, I mean, the guy is so upstanding. He goes face to face with David's enemy, who also happened to be his own father. He entered the enemy's camp. He faced David's foe. And just to find out what his intentions were. Not once did he, did he give David up or tell Saul where David was or allow his own ambition to take precedence over David in those moments. Instead, he walked right into the presence of David's enemy as an ambassador, never even giving a single thought to his own potential loss or gain. And we see, look at those verses, what happens. Saul is not happy, and he immediately he begins to assault Jonathan, showing that sometimes a true friend receives insults and disgrace that were actually meant for you. In verse 30, um, Saul... As we've seen through the course of the book that he's descending more and more into madness, really. And in verse 30, he says these horrific things to Jonathan that really should have been pointed at David. Saul is totally irrational in his anger, and he, in the moment, he's assaulting his own wife, right? As well as his son. You can imagine that likely the wife would have been there. It was a feast. It was a festival. So he's shouting these irrational things at Jonathan while insulting the mother of his own child. But Jonathan, he doesn't react. He's always like such a cool guy. But David's fear is fully realized by Jonathan in those moments. And he doesn't use it to his own advantage. Instead, we see a true friend releases their rights for yours. In that moment, Jonathan had every opportunity to take full advantage of his birthright. Sometimes I think we forget, like we think of Saul and, or David and Jonathan as two, two buddies, right? But remember that Jonathan was a prince as well. Jonathan was the son of a king. Saul shouts, warning that, hey, as long as he's alive, you'll have no chance at the throne. And instead of falling for that 
subtle trap, Jonathan asks him, well, what has he done? What has he done? This questioning tells Saul right away, he knows, okay, my son is now on the side of this new forthcoming king. And in a matter of seconds, his temper reacts, and he's left vulnerable to attack by his own father, which tells us something very interesting, that a true friend is willing to receive your punishment. Jonathan was in a very vulnerable position. His own father tried to murder him by throwing his spear at him right in these moments. And as I mentioned, Saul had already done this two times to David. He'd done it once before to Jonathan. So this is his fourth failed attempt at a spear throw. Not that we're keeping track, but I mean, if you lose once, maybe you should practice. And if you lose twice, maybe find another tactic. And if you don't do it the third time, just stop. But still, he goes for it this fourth time. And I have this picture in my head. He's, like, he's getting older, right? So he's likely an older man who's trying to heave a, a spear at two able-bodied young men. And Jonathan, I mean, he doesn't even run away because verse 34, look what it says. Jonathan got up from the table in fierce anger. He just sat there at the table while his dad <laughs> tried to throw a spear at him and it missed him. But still, the fierce anger. He was not physically hurt, but he was definitely emotionally grieved after what Saul had revealed at the table because a true friend wants you to be treated well. Have you ever had a friend that sort of likes making fun of you or makes jokes at your expense or they like seeing you fail or they laugh when bad things happen to you or they clap when bad things happen to you? A person who derives pleasure out of someone else's pain is not a friend, but they are definitely an enemy because a real friend wants you to be honored. They want you to succeed. They want you to have success and do well and they actually grieve when this doesn't happen. Now, I used the NIV on this, um, but another version says in verse 34 that on the second day of the feast, he did not eat meat. Now, just think about that for a moment. A warm-blooded man did not eat meat because of his loyalty to his friend. How many of you like eating meat? How many of you like eating two or more kinds of meat at one meal? Abusa. <laughs> okay, one week Pastor Sean was preaching and he was telling us about a story that he had sat down to a vegetarian meal at a home in another country. And he was shocked because he said, I love eating two kinds of meat at every meal. And I was sitting in the congregation and he was coming to our house that week for dinner. And I was like, okay. Now I know I need two kinds of meat. I, <laughs> I have to honor our pastor, and it'll be at least two kinds. So, But think, <laughs> yeah, we're actually listening to the things you tell us, pastor. <laughs> now, so Jonathan decides not to take meat because of how grieved he is in his spirit. What would your friend have to experience in order for you to stop eating meat? or for you to stop taking meat at a festival, of all things. I, I mentioned to you that I was in Kenya for a year, and I had a Canadian friend that had also gone for this study abroad program, and she was a vegetarian. And so we used to travel into many rural locations and visiting churches and preaching and things like this, and she would say, I don't take meat, and I see your faces, and that's how people would also respond there. 
<laughs> she, they could, it was just hard to understand about this person who doesn't eat any meat. But for one day, for the rest, or for the remainder of this, on that second day, he doesn't take meat because of how upset he is. Now let's think, go back to Jonathan for a moment. He's hiding somewhere in a field. In verse 35, Jonathan goes out to the field where he knew David was hiding, and he shouted out about those arrows. And he sends this message to David that things were not okay. And as I said earlier, of course, David trusted his friend. Trusted his friend because he knew he would keep his word. If you want to have a true friend, you got to keep your word. If you want to be a true friend, you also have to keep your word. Everyone knows someone who is forever saying they are coming when you know they're really not. Or they, you, take, you go to a restaurant and they say, you pay this time, I'll pay the next time. And they never do. Or someone who says they're going to help you out, but it never happens. My brother does this all the time. <laughs> and he's like the worst for we'll plan a family event and, okay, can you organize this? Are you going to come with us? Yeah, I'm going to come. Then you call him because he's not showing up. Then it's half an hour. Then it's an hour. Then it's two hours. And you call him and he says, oh, I'm, I'm just helping my friend move. I'm not kidding. This happens every time. He always helps his friend move on a day that we have a family plan. I'm like, brother, you need to get some new friends. Why are they moving like twice a month anyway? It doesn't make sense. So, but a true friend keeps his word. You know, Jonathan comes up with this crazy arrow scheme just to, to give this message to David, and he follows through because he knows his friend's life depends on it. And then looking at, at verse 41, we see here a very tender depiction of the love of these two friends. You know, they're, they're in deep anguish because they probably realize there's no way that this is going to end well. When they greet each other, David bows three times before Jonathan. And again, David is lowering himself because this is actually a way of recognizing Jonathan's royal status as the son of a king. I think uh, it says that his head actually, his face is to the ground. A true friend recognizes your worth. Even though they're about to enter the most difficult stage of their friendship, and eventually John will die, Jonathan will die at the hands of the Philistines, David ascribes to Jonathan his worth for who he really is. A true friend will recognize who you are on the inside, even when the situation all around you, it can be grim, it can be desperate, and the world is not willing to recognize it. You might not know what happens, will happen tomorrow like these two, but a true friend treats you well and they show you that no matter what, they're willing to say to the world, this person is special. Now I have this a friend in Canada and she's forever posting things on social media, of po posting pictures of things that her best friend sends her, like flowers, cards, clothes, little mementos, gift certificates, like th one thing after another. And I'll be honest, it's like, okay, we know you guys are friends, like, but they actually recognize each other's worth. They do things to show one another that they appreciate each other, and it's pretty special. And we see David, don't forget, he's still just a shepherd boy, right? He humbles himself as a servant before a prince, and you can feel the tenderness in that moment because both are weeping, even though the scripture tells us that David weeps even more. David, he, he knows what's coming, and he feels that 
the heaviness in the call. And he realizes that God has called him to this task, and it's going to cost him more than anything he's ever imagined. And he has no idea yet about losing children and, and all of the pain that comes with that. But in this moment of reckoning, they play such a vital role with one another. Because a true friend gives reassurance of the Lord's presence and the Lord's promise. And in these moments, Jonathan reminds David of their covenant and that they have made together before the Lord. It's not going to end when their lives end, but rather it will continue for generations. He reminds David, it's going to be the Lord that's between you and I. You need a friend like this. You need someone who's going to remind you of God's faithfulness when things are looking bleak and nothing looks like it's going to work out. I uh, have a picture to show you because I want to tell you about my true friend. Her name is Rachel. This is a picture of us together last year. And uh, we started our first year of Bible college in 2001, and they, the school assigned us together as roommates. So we didn't know each other at all, uh, but I still remember the day we were moving into the dorms. I was with my mom and my grandma. They were helping me get my, all my junk shoved in a small space. And my grandma excitedly whispers, oh, you'll be able to share each other's clothes. <laughs> and I was like, but she was right. I mean... <laughs> She was right. So, you know, we became really good friends. We've seen each other through every struggle from our first semester of ministry training up to getting married and having children. I mean, we even shared maternity clothes, I'll be honest about that. And uh, I put our names there just so you can see. We even have the same second name, which is pronounced Lee, but spelled differently, and the same initials, RLW. Like, that's pretty cool, right? <laughs> But in November of 2014 is when we moved to Malawi, and we've had so many wonderful experiences, and we're so blessed to be here. But it's, it's I'll admit to you, it's hard to be away from her. It's hard to, even though we can chat on WhatsApp and FaceTime and all that kind of stuff, it's hard. It's been hard having my friends uh, so far away. And um, I've never really struggled to make friends because Jeff says I ask too many questions. <laughs> Um, but since leaving, it's been hard to make new friends. I can, I can be honest about that. You know, there's a lot of factors, and I'm praying about it, and I'm so grateful for our growth group. Put a shout out if you're from our growth group so everyone can see how wonderful you are. Yay! <laughs> um, but this week, I was at work, and I told you a story the last time about something that happened at work, and once again, God used a situation there to help me with my sermon. So a lady came, um, she lives in Area 47, and she's interested in adopting a child. Now I'm going to give you a, a very quick synopsis of what, what's been happening. When we arrived in Malawi, the children's homes had 80 children living in them, and um, the government has instituted a program so that every orphanage, children's home organization can re should reintegrate children and send them back to their relatives if at all possible. So we used to have 80, and we're down to 29 because we've located all of those relatives and done all the children visiting and coming back and going for holiday and coming back and assessments with social welfare, and it's been about two years to get to this point. And it's, it's beautiful, and by next time I share with you, I'm gonna tell you, I'll tell you some of the amazing stories. But all of the kids are still able to stay on sponsorship, which means they can continue with school and 
um, still have everything that they need, even though they're living at home now instead of an orphanage. But we have about, uh, I think there's seven children that have no relatives whatsoever. So they were found maybe uh, wandering in a market, or they were dropped at social welfare, or found in a pit latrine, those kinds of stories. So those children, it's, it's amazing, like God is a father to the fatherless, but one after the other, after the other, after the other, are all being adopted by Malawian families. And I'm so excited about that because it's nothing, like as an organization, we've not advertised that, but it's people that are getting a heart for uh, the crisis that the nation is in with, with the orphan care. Like we have 125 orphanages in Malawi and they're all at capacity. And as, as, as we well know, like a lot of them have extended families and stuff like that. But that's why the government has started this program of reintegration. So anyway, this lady came because she was interested to adopt uh, one of these children. So we don't know each other at all. It was our first time meeting. And uh, we talked about why she was there and she met many of the kids. And she just said very directly, so have you made very many friends since coming to Malawi? And I was like, <laughs> what would make her ask something like that in a moment while I'm preparing a sermon like this and in a time where I can, as I've said, it's, it's challenging, it's been hard. I'm not surprised that God wanted to help me with this. You know, I, I explained to her that, yeah, like my friends, that like Rachel, are, they feel so far away sometimes, but we're, we're slowly making friends and we do have them. And she almost like scolded me and she said, it's not okay for you to stay here in my country and not have any friends. I said, I, don't, I didn't say I don't have any. <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> I have four kids and no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you know, our, our, our conversation continued and I felt the Lord saying, you know, he wants to provide this need for this need and he wants to provide it for you as well he, he wants to not only to give you a special friend for someone that you can rely on but he wants you to find all of your friendship needs in him he is the true friend who brings comfort he promised that he would send the holy spirit to be our comforter to be with us in our every need He's the true friend who is willing to do absolutely anything for you because he laid himself upon the cross and he took the nails on your behalf. He gave himself up to death, up unto death because of his love for you. Not only that, but he serves you. He attends to your needs. He gets down. He washes your dirty, calloused feet, my feet, my dirty, calloused feet to show us what it means to serve other people. He also made himself vulnerable for you. He left his heavenly home to come to earth. He became low. He humbled himself. And he's a true friend because of his willingness to completely and entirely expose his full nature to us so that we might know him. And dear one, he keeps you safe. When you're surrounded by danger and you don't know what will happen, when you're filled with fear, he keeps you safe. He's the port in our storm called life. This truest friend, this truest savior valued your life over his own. His very death took place so that we may have this abundant life. Our friend Jesus, he calls out blessing over you. Jonathan says to David, may the Lord be with you as he was with my father. And Jesus himself says, I am with you. I will never forsake you. 
That is the blessing of his presence, that he speaks over us as believers. And his love, it extends through all generations. Psalm 105, verse 8, reminds us that he has remembered his covenant, his love forever, the word which he has commanded to a thousand generations. And our true friend, Jesus, protects you. When the evil one tries to destroy you, Jesus stands between him and you. His nail-scarred hands hold back Satan. And all, every demonic army that would try to destroy you, that would try to assail you with weapons and warfare. And now, something more difficult to consider. Jesus trusts you with his life. No, I don't mean his real life, his physical life, but are you using the life that he's given you for his purpose and for his glory? He said that he has come, that we might have life and have it more abundantly. If we live in a, in a mediocre way or we put aside everything that this life means, then what, is, what does this death mean to you? He's given his life for you and he's even faced your enemies. He's battled for your very soul. He's taken on death, hell, and the grave for you. Those are your real enemies. Not your neighbors, not your co-workers, not even your mother-in-law. Along with this, Jesus has received insults and disgrace that were meant for you. He stood and he received your punishment. When he was beaten and put up, spit upon, it should have been me. When he carried the cross up a rugged hill, it should have been you. And when he was nailed to the tree between two common thieves, it should have been us. He released his rights for ours. Those things that belong to him, a crown, a throne, an inheritance, he released that we might share them with him. He wants you to be treated well. Look, look at the story of the, the prodigal son. We know it. Uh, when you were a long way off, he was looking for you. He kills the fattened calf. He puts a ring on your finger. He throws a robe around your shoulder, and he keeps his word. He can be trusted to do what he says he will do. His word is sure, and it never fails. And Jesus, as our truest friend, show, recognizes the value that you hold. You are his treasure. Just say that. I am his treasure. I am his treasure. He made himself low so that you might know him. Finally, we have a reassurance of his presence and his promise. He promised that he would send his Holy Spirit to be with us. He said that he would never leave us or forsake us. He's our true friend. You can trust him. You can know him. You can rely upon him for everything you need. He's the friend that laid down his life for you. We are his friends when we do what he has commanded so that we can bear fruit and love one another. Uh, the, the music team is going to come, and I'm going to pray for you this morning. Um, if you would like prayer about anything, not just about a true friend or healing in friendship or asking the Lord for, uh, for an answer to something you've been looking for, please come up here to the front, and some of um, the people responsible for that will be here. Let's pray together and let's ask the Lord, one, for a true friend. If you don't have a true friend, let's ask the Lord for that. And two, let's ask Jesus to help us that we may know him as our truest friend. Let's pray. 
Lord, I thank you for the story of David and Jonathan. I thank you for the ways that you used them in to speak even to us in this room today, all these centuries later. God, we ask in your name that if we don't have a true friend, that you would send that friend. Lord, you would, we ask as well that you would help us to be a true friend to others. We take our example from you. We hear from, from what you have done for us that we can then do that for other people. Lord, I thank you so much for your faithfulness, for your goodness, for how you care for us, for th that you lay down yourself completely for us so that we may know you. Lord, I pray for every person here this morning that you would speak to their hearts through your holy word. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>